My name is John Reynolds. I'm one of the members here at PBC. And uh, what we're going to be reading from is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, my brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware of the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not be able to escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for you that day will not surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are all not the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep uh, like others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and for those who, be, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on a breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we be awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Please close your eyes and bow your head. Father God, just thank you so much for today. God, just thank you for the safety that... uh, that we had to being able to gather here. Lord, I just want to uh, lift up our Pastor Tim. Please guide his words, be in this presence. Lord, also just with uh, the passage that we read, God, just thank you that it is not in our responsibility or in our resolve, but in your grace and mercy that, um, that the ending day uh, where the responsibility is laid. God, just thank you so much for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, John. You guys can take a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to Phoenix Bible Church. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. And uh, excited that you guys are here. Excited that uh, ASU and GCU are back for the fall semester as you guys get kicked off for classes. You stoked about that? Okay, maybe. We'll see. Give it a few weeks. Uh, We're excited that you're here. Uh, One of our own students uh, from GCU, Nick Fisher, is here with us. Yeah, give it up for Nick as he go ahead and comes up on stage. Look at that guy. He's got the shirt and everything. Uh, a few months ago, you guys may remember, we sent Nick off, 19 years old, sent him off to Indonesia and uh, prayed for him. And as he sought what God would have for him there to do mission work there, and uh, he made it back in one piece. And so we're glad to have him back. And Nick, I just want you to share uh, with these people, you shared it with me, just some of what you learned, what you experienced. Okay, um, I'll start off by what I actually did um, and then share with you some experiences. I'll be pretty quick. Um, So we went to Palembang, Indonesia, a team of four uh, college students. Um, And Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. Uh, It's the largest Muslim country in the world. Uh, And it's an unreached country, which means that the majority of people there don't know who Jesus is and don't understand the gospel, and they don't know someone who does either. Um, It's 80% Muslim. Um, and it's very culturally Muslim as well. Uh, while we were there, we shared with college students who spoke English. Um, we shared with them uh, more explicitly as time and a relationship developed with those people. Um, and we went, um, uh, we told our friends, it's a closed country, so we're not supposed to be there sharing um, Christ. So we went there technically, um, or publicly, we went there to learn Indonesian language and culture. Uh, so we got to enjoy um, Indonesia and understanding how they think and their language and their food and, and their culture, how they interact with one another. Um, and that helped so that we could communicate the gospel clearly in, in the context of their culture, not diminishing the gospel, but making it clearly understood by them. Um, 
a few experiences we had as difficulties with language and culture. I can remember I was sitting on the back of a motorcycle with uh, one of my friends, and, and I wanted to just get to lunch so we could share with him. And um, he said, you know, where would you like to go eat? And I said, I, I don't know. I've never been here before. Where do you like to eat? And he goes, do you like McDonald's? And I'm like, I don't want to go to McDonald's. <laughs> just take me somewhere you like to go. And this went on for a few minutes, and we're just driving on through the city, and I'm just you know, I'm getting anxious. I just want to sit down and start talking with them so that we can get to, you know, talking about Jesus. Um, and another time is I was sharing with a guy in, in public, and um, we talked about how if, if good works can appease God, then that's a corrupt God. And they understand corruption uh, because their police are very corrupt. And whenever you break the law, you just give them money, and then it goes away. Um, and so we were talking about that together, and he just got stuck on this one word, corruption. He just got, our government is so corrupt. I'm like, yes, but so... Back to talking about religion. And so, um, you know, we had difficulties at times communicating with them. And, um, but the food was great. The culture was great. It was difficult and discouraging at times because no one came to know Jesus. No one decided to follow Jesus. Uh, they can't flippantly make decisions like that in their country because if they do, they'll lose their community, their education, and their family, and they could be killed. Um, but I, I met one believer who had converted just before um, we got there and was able to walk alongside him and the missionary who was discipling him. And it was um, an honor to watch him grow um, and, a, and disciple himself. And he began discipling others. He was discipling um, nominal Christians. There's a few hundred thousand nominal Christians in the country. And, and he would just sit down with his Bible and start talking about Jesus with these people who claimed to be Christians but didn't even know what the gospel was. And it was beautiful seeing the church do its work with its own people in Indonesia. And uh, he would encourage me as well. When I was nervous about sharing with another Indonesian, he would send me a text message and encourage me, and, you know, God is with you, and he will provide for you, and he'll give you the words to say, and the, the word speaks truth, and that's what these people need to hear. Um, so I guess in closing, I'd just like to say that this changes how I see Arizona, how I see the United States and Americans. It's, I had plenty of rejection in Indonesia, so now I'm not afraid to share with anyone here, because it's whatever. <laughs> um, but it's also so much easier here. We get to share with people in our own language and our culture, and we understand the context. And, and what a great opportunity we have to share with people in our neighborhoods. Um, and these people in America aren't unreached because you work in their office, and you go to school with them, and you're in their classroom. So you have the great pleasure of carrying out the Great Commission here in Phoenix. That's a great word. Well, would you just join me in praying for Nick, uh, praying that Jesus would reign um, in Indonesia, but also ASU, GCU, as you guys get started with school, uh, and, and Phoenix as well. Let's do that together. Father, thank you uh, for Nick. I just thank you for his heart. I thank you for getting to see that uh, over the last year or so, and just uh, that this is genuine. This is who the guy is, that he genuinely wants people to know you, uh, so much so that he spent 90 days in a, another country uh, in a lot of unfamiliarity to do that. And so, God, I pray that you would bless it. Maybe he didn't see someone follow Jesus while he was there. Uh, but, God, that seeds were planted, that maybe someone down the road will say, oh, I remember when this guy, Nick, when he first told me about the gospel, and it was crazy, and I didn't believe it, but then somebody else told me, and then somebody else told me, and then one day the Spirit grabbed my heart, and it never let go. God, I pray stories like that would happen in Indonesia. I pray that stories like, like that would happen at ASU, at GCU, in Phoenix, in this community, in this city, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Give it up for Nick as he takes a seat.
excited to hear from him. Like I said, we didn't hear much from him over the summer. We prayed for him and got a few updates, and so it's good to hear uh, what God did. This morning, we're in uh, 1 Thessalonians, and as we get into it, we're really approaching the end. Uh, We've been in it for about seven weeks, and so we've talked about some heavy topics, all right? 1 Thessalonians addresses those. So a couple weeks ago, we addressed God's design for sexuality. We talked about what that means in light of our culture, in light of Scripture, and it was a heavy topic. Last week, we continued with those light trends and talked about the end of the world, all right? And this week, we just couldn't get enough of it, so we're talking about it again. Because scripture talks about it again. And so we're in part two of really what the end times are going to look like. And the reality is, as we talk about end times, I imagine you, even now, tons of different things come to your mind. So for some of you, you get images in your mind of fire and destruction. Like you can see those things vividly because of a movie you saw or something you saw on the news. Some of you, you think about prophetic announcements or people yelling on street corners Some of you think about Kirk Cameron or the reboot with Nick Cage and the Left Behind series. That's what you think about when you think of the end times. And I think most of those examples are rather extreme. And because of that, most of us go to one or two ends of the spectrum when it comes to end times. Some of us go to preoccupation with it. It's it's a paranoia. We think about it all the time. We predict when it's coming. We try to. We worry about it. We watch doomsday preppers way too much. We go to Costco way too much. And we obsess about the end times. We're preoccupied with it in an unhealthy way. Others of us go the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And we go to complete avoidance. And we just say, it seems kind of weird. It seems kind of mystical. No one can really understand it anyway. And so we don't want to talk about it. And we don't want to think about it. But the reality is, The Bible talks about it. And so we're going to talk about it. The reality is Jesus talks about it. Matthew 24. Jesus describes what it's going to look like at the end. And so we want to talk about this morning in a healthy, in a biblical way, in a helpful way to you to see how does the end affect today. As we see the end rightly, how does that affect the way we live today? And so that's where we're headed. So look at your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to jump right in. It says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So as you look at the text, you see this phrase, times and seasons. And so we want to ask, times and seasons of what? Look at the verses. It's what we just talked about last week. It's the, the end, the coming of the Lord. This text says the day of of the Lord. And Paul says something interesting. He says, I really don't even need to talk about the timing of it. Why does he say that? Look at verse 2. He says, you are fully aware that it will come like a thief in the night. And so by thief in the night, Paul is talking about it being a surprise. Thieves don't call ahead to let you know they're coming. And so Paul is saying it's going to be like that. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 24. He says it's going to be like a thief in the night. He says no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. So Jesus talks about this. Paul talks about this. So our first point as we think about the end is when will it come? And the answer is no one knows except for the Father. Does that encourage you? 
No one knows. That's our first point. No one knows when the end will come, but that doesn't keep people from trying to guess. Right, so several times in history, the most recent big one was the year 2000, Y2K. You remember this? Everybody was freaking out, thinking our computers are going to break. Because that's clearly somewhere in the book of Revelation. So we started to expect the end, and we started to go to gas stations, and you couldn't get in one. Bottle water sales skyrocketed. Right? Costco, booming. Because people were worried, maybe this is the end. Y2K, it's so scary. It was crazy, if you remember that time. I just saw a graphic recently that said, 2015, this time for sure. <laughs> what they're saying is, have we predicted it wrong so many times? But this time, I have a good feeling. It's going to happen this time. And so there's billboards, there's signs, there's charts, there's calculations all over the place. But listen, the one thing we know for sure about the end is we don't know for sure when it's coming. That's the one thing we know for sure about the end. That's what we learn from Jesus. That's what we learn here. So we don't know when, but we do learn what. Look at the verse in verse 3. What is coming? It says this. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So Paul describes a little bit about what's coming in the end, and what he says is destruction. He says it will be like labor pains that you can't escape. It's interesting in the Greek, there's a strong expression used here to describe a fleeting that will be futile. And so I remember our second child's birth. Happened in the middle of the night. My wife was in pain. And so we rush out of the house. And we speed to the hospital, going 100 miles an hour, running stoplights. It was like a movie. We get to the hospital room. And we walk in. And the first question my wife asked, the most important, is, can I get the epidural? And the nurse looked at her, and honestly, somewhat politely, there was some politeness to it, she said, sweetie, it's too late for the epidural. And I heard something I've never heard before. <laughs> it was my wife screaming, I can't do this. And honestly, that went on for the next 10 minutes or so. And as a husband... I didn't know what to do except grab my wife's hand and gently say, baby, you can do this. And you have to because it's going to happen whether you want it to or not. <laughs> it was the reality that this is coming. When Paul thinks about the destruction at the end, he says it's going to be like that. He says it's going to be like that. Interesting analogy. But he says it's going to be like that whether you want it to happen or not, fleeting is futile. The destruction will come, and it will be inescapable. And so you might ask, why destruction? Why destruction? Well, we see this phrase, the day of the Lord. And what you need to know, the day of the Lord is something that's referred to throughout Scripture as the day when God judges sin, finally. We see that in the Old Testament in places like Joel 2. He describes it as a day of darkness. We see it in the New Testament, in Acts 2, 
where he references that passage in Joel 2, we see Jesus, listen, Jesus loves, but he references destruction in the end. Who experiences this? It's a question we need to ask. Romans 2 tells us. It says, all who are unrepentant, that means not willing to turn away from sin, will experience the day of God's wrath. So C.S. Lewis gives us a good picture of this. He says this, listen. He says, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature, that in the end there will be judgment. And the reality is that most of us are terrified by that. As we think about judgment, most of us are terrified by that. It's why many people don't come to church. It's why many people don't want to have anything to do with God or the Bible because they think God only judges, only Christians, all they do is judge. And I don't want to be a part of that. Many people are turned away because of that. Maybe even some of you this morning, even as we start to talk about judgment, you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel a little bit awkward inside. You're not sure what to think about the judgment in the end. Well, you need to know that judgment should make us uncomfortable because it is a terrifying thing. But if you really think about it, you know what's more terrifying? If you really think about it, what's more terrifying is that justice will never come. And so just a few months ago, nine people were killed inside a church during a Bible study. That included pastors, elderly, and it was all seemingly out of pure hate. Just this week, I read Friday night. I was looking at my sermon, and I read that a heavily armed man opened up fire on a train in France. And the best they could tell, there was no specific target. He just wanted to kill. And then lastly, a woman in Ohio this week calmly called 911 to report her three-month-old baby wasn't breathing. You can listen to the call. And then hours later, she confessed to killing him and her two other young sons over the past several months. That's just CNN.com. That's just our news. Like, what happened this week? What happened just a few months ago? And the reality is all of us hear that even in this moment, and we cringe. Like, if you know Jesus or if you don't. If you've been in church all your life or if you just showed up today for the first time, you read those stories, you hear those stories, and you cringe and you think, that's wrong. That's wrong. More than just against the laws of the land, like that's wrong in the universe. Like that shouldn't happen. These things shouldn't happen. It's wrong. And what this text is describing, you need to know this, that one day God will say, enough. That he'll say enough and that he'll come back and bring justice for all of sin, for all of evil. And he'll bring judgment. So what's more terrifying than the judgment of God? It's a world where evil reigns void of any hope that justice will ever come. So we should take comfort that we have a God who is just. And let me say this. If you struggle with judgment, congrats. You're normal. Like that's normal to wrestle with the idea of judgment. Listen, the people who stand on street corners and hold up signs and yell at everybody and get excited about this, that's just weird. Like something's off there. We don't get excited about judgment. If you struggle with it, if right now this morning you are uncomfortable talking about it, you're normal. 
right? We can wrestle with this idea of judgment, but ultimately we want to take comfort in knowing that we have a good God, a just God, who will not let evil reign in the end, that he's coming to bring justice. So how do we respond to that? Paul introduces us to two responses, two types of people in our text. Look at the text, verses 4 and 5. He says there's people of the light in the day, and he says there's people of the dark in the night. This imagery is used throughout the Bible. In this specific context, we're talking about people in the light seeing God clearly as good and sin clearly as evil. And they turn from sin and turn to God. The people in the dark, they refuse to see God for who he is and who they are without God. So there's people of the light of the day, and there's people of the dark and of the night. And the people of the dark, they're not worried about judgment. It says in verse 3, they have peace and security that Paul's referring to a mantra in the Roman Empire that if you had money and if you had power, if you had some money in the bank and the people that you wanted to be in political power were in power, peace and security, that everything's going to be okay. And what Paul's describing is people in the dark that just look at surface-level things and say, I have success in my career. I got money in the bank. I got some power. The people that I want to be in power are in power. All is well. All is good. And Paul is saying that they won't know that judgment is coming. They won't see the end coming. And Paul tells the Christians in Thessalonica, that's not you. And Paul tells you, if you know Jesus, that's not you. That you're people of the light. You're people of the day. Because you know God. He's illumined his truth to you. And you know who he is. And you know he's coming back. And you know there's an end in sight. And so we live differently because of that. And we want to see how. Verse 6 tells us. Verse 6, it says this. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as, just as you are doing. So how do we live as people of light? Verses 6 and 7 tell us that we would be sober, not drunk, like awake, not sleep. What he's talking about is that we would think clearly, that we would be alert, that we would take God seriously, that we would say, God, I know who you are, I see you as who you are, and I respond accordingly, that we would be sober. So listen, as you think about the end, you don't need to be afraid, but you do need to be alert. As you think about the end, you don't need to be afraid, but you do need to be alert. You do need to realize that a good and just God is coming to rescue his children but he's also coming to judge sin. And because of that truth, because we actually believe that, there's a lot on the line every day. That everything matters because of that. That everything matters, even the little things. And so several months ago, I had all my three kids because my wife had an appointment, and so I had all three kids, and I decided I'm gonna take them to the park. And I'll be honest, partly it was to just to burn energy and kill time till bedtime. So I take them to the park, and we get there, and I just start to think, man, I've got all three of my kids. Like, we shouldn't just kill time 
Like, we should make this a moment, like a daddy moment, right? And so I think, what other way to make a daddy moment than to reenact Diego, the show? And so we did. And so my son was little Diego. I was big Diego. And my little baby girl, Tana B, was baby Jaguar, of course. And my six-year-old daughter was the cousin. I can't remember her name. But we did. We started playing this game of Diego. And so our adventure, our task was to find these baby eggs, to secure them with their mom. And so we go throughout the park and we grab some pine cones, baby eggs. We grab these pine cones and we go and we hide them. We nestle them in next to their mom. And we had a great time. We spent a couple hours there. And that was several months ago. And since that time, randomly at dinner, over the last few months, my son, who's three years old, will be talking about our days. We'll be sharing stories and laughing. And my son will randomly just say, remember that time we went to the park? And I was Diego. And you were Diego. And Tanavi was baby Jaguar. And mommy wasn't there. He always reminds her of that part. And just randomly, I swear, like four to five times since that time, a few months ago, he'll just bring up this story. And part of that is he just wants to go to the park, and we just tell him, sorry, buddy, it's too hot. We live in Phoenix. But part of it is that little opportunity made a big impact, right? And that's something silly, and that's something with my kids. But listen, all of life is like that. When you're alert, when you realize that everything matters, listen, that's one of our aspects of our culture that we want to build here, that we create a culture as a church where everything matters. Where you plug in a cable on a Sunday morning matters. Where you talking to your neighbor about Jesus when no one else sees that, that matters. The preaching of God's word, that matters too, but everything matters because it's all part of forwarding the mission of Jesus. And so when we think like that, when we're alert, as this scripture talks about, we realize that everything matters. And so all the time in our church, people come up to me and say things like, Tim, I've never experienced the love of Jesus quite like this before. Like I've never heard the gospel talked about like this before. And I'll ask them, like, what, what was it? And they usually just give simple answers. Like, man, somebody just told me in the midst of a difficult situation, like, Jesus loves you. Somebody told me on a difficult day, like, you know, Jesus is taking this difficult day, and he's shaping you and teaching you and molding you in his image through it. It's just a little comment, a little thing that happened, and they, they come to say, I've never felt loved by Jesus like this before. I've never seen the gospel lived out like this before. I don't know how many times I hear people in our church say things like, this place, it just feels like home. And the reality is they haven't been here that many times. And they don't know that many people, but they say, this place feels like family to me. And it's because somebody said, hey, man, how's it going? It's because somebody talked to them on a Sunday before or after the service. It's because somebody brought their kid pajamas while they were in the hospital. And it impacts them. These little opportunities bring big impact. Listen, that's all of life. When we realize Jesus is coming back, that there's an end in sight, that he's going to bring destruction for sin, but he's also going to rescue his children, everything matters and can be redeemed by good and just God. So we 
are alert. We're not drunk. We're not sleeping. We're alert that this day is coming. So how? How are we equipped to live lives like that? Verse 8 tells us. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for, the helmet, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He says the three tools we have in our tool belt as we live in light of the end are this. Faith, hope, and love. And that they're all intertwined. And so he says hope acts as a helmet. That we know, we talked about this last week, that we have a confident expectation of what's to come. That there's hope in that. That it's not wishful thinking. And so when you doubt about the end, when you doubt about today, that you lean on hope. And that's not just a crutch. That's not just wishful thinking. That's you knowing in your mind the promises of God. That he's coming back. That he's going to rescue you. That you have a confident expectation of that happening. And so it's a, a helmet of hope. And then we have a breastplate of faith and love. That faith protects your fleeting affections and love directs them to their proper place. That faith protects your fleeting affections and that love directs them to their proper place toward God and toward others. So we have hope, we have faith, and we have love. These are our tools to live lives like this, that are alert, that see the end in sight. How do we get access to this faith, hope, and love? Look at the text. Verses 9 and 10. It says we're not destined for judgment, but salvation. How? How? How are we not destined for this wrath? I mean, we've sinned. Like, maybe it's not those crazy stories on the news. But maybe as you look at your life, as you look at your week, you, you can call right to mind the ways in which you have sinned against the holy God. Maybe you know God. But there's a fear in you that thinks, maybe I don't have salvation. Like, maybe I'm not secure. I mean, if you just saw what I did last week, like, maybe it's still not intact. Like maybe God's going to turn his back on me in the end. You need to know that as we look at this text, that our access to this faith, hope, and love is not dependent on you, but it's dependent solely upon Jesus Christ. So we don't think in terms of the end and think securely in terms of the end because we work really hard and we try really hard and we think maybe I'll earn God's smile in the end. That's not our mentality as we think about the end. We think, no, I'm not secure in and of myself. I have sin, and it may not be as ugly as what's on the news, but it's ugly, and it's not right. But, verse 9, it's good news. Look at verse 9. It's through Jesus who died for us, through Jesus who took our sin, through Jesus who absorbed the wrath of God, that we can take hope in the end and salvation that we have faith, hope, and love to walk with today because of Jesus Christ. That through him, through his death and through his resurrection, that we have a hope in the end. That the reason the Christian can look forward to the end is that we don't experience wrath. Amen? Verse 10, we experience what? We experience life with Jesus. So my, one of my favorite stories is uh, John Wesley. I've shared it once before. But John Wesley... Um, a Christian missionary, comes over to the United States, comes over to America on a boat. And a huge storm hits. And the boat's about to be shipwrecked, they think. And so everybody's freaking out. And they're worried about that this may be the end. This may be death. 
and that John Wesley, the chaplain of the boat, that he's freaking out also. It's not, not going too well if the chaplain of the boat is freaking out just like everybody else. But John Wesley notices this group of people, and it's a group of Moravians, and they're not freaking out like everybody else. They're not anxious like everybody else. In fact, they're sitting down, calmly singing. What we all would do if we were about to shipwreck in the middle of the ocean. These group of Moravians, they're calmly singing. And Wesley notices this as the chaplain of the boat. And he says, I don't think I have what they have. Like, how could they be so calm in the face of death? And so he goes to them later. They survived that. He goes to them later and he says, how could you? How could you be so calm and courageous in the face of death? And paraphrasing, they say it's because we know the guy who beat death. It's because we know Jesus. Do you know him? And they walked John Wesley through salvation. And he met Jesus and his life was transformed. How can we be calm in the face of death? It's because we know the guy who beat death. That Jesus died, but he rose again, and we can have confidence and assurance in that. That for the Christian, fear of death is eroded, that we have knowledge that we died with Christ, that we already died with him. So fear of death is eroded, that we think in terms of reigning with Christ, living with Christ. And fear of death goes by the wayside. It's why we can sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. What would it be like if we lived like that? You think about that? What would it be like if we lived like that? No guilt in life. No guilt in life. No guilt. No fear of death. That this is the power of Christ in you. What would that be like? Paul says in verse 11, we would encourage each other. We would build each other up because there's immense hope there. Listen, as a church, we've been doing this thing for like 10, 11 months. We're about to celebrate our first year anniversary as a church. And throughout this first year, we continue to come back to the gospel. We continue to come back to Jesus. Some of you may notice, like every sermon ends, maybe it frustrates you. Like, what are we supposed to do? Let's fix your eyes on Jesus. That he's our hope, that his death, his resurrection, his life, that that's our hope. That we look to him and we see he's better. And then out of that, after we've done that, then we can talk about what to do. Then we can talk about Jesus is better, so I need to repent. I need to turn away from these things that aren't, and I need to turn to him because he's better. And so we think in terms of Jesus is better, and I need to celebrate. There's no fear of death anymore. He saved me. He loves me. He's accepted me and forgiven me. We celebrate. That we look to Jesus and we see that he's better, so we change our schedules. That we change our priorities. That we begin to think in terms of not just what best serves me, but how can I best serve God and others. We always start with Jesus is better. This is who Jesus is. So if you'll notice, if you remember from last week, Chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. In verse 11, just a few verses later, he says, encourage and build each other up with this. Why does he come back to that? 
Maybe they were getting tired. The Thessalonians were like, okay, we got that check. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is what matters. Jesus is better. He's saying, encourage one another again. Because even in the last few verses, you may have forgotten. You may have gotten off track. You may be discouraged. Because you may forget that Jesus is better. That he's coming back again to rule and to reign. And that is our hope. Encourage one another. That's what it's going to be like if we live like this. If we live in light of the end. We're going to continually encourage one another. Encourage one another with this truth. The truth of the gospel. Until we get frustrated. And then we're going to keep doing it. We're going to do that as a church. We're going to do that personally. That's what it would look like. It would look like where we don't just sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death, but we actually believe it. Can you imagine that kind of freedom? It's yours in Christ. This morning, not just in the end. It's yours today. Can you imagine living with that kind of freedom? Where Those are just words on a page that we sing. We believe that. We live that collectively as the body of Christ. And so how do we think about the end? Here's what I want you to walk away with. It's not paranoid preoccupation. It's not paranoid preoccupation where we predict, we worry, we go to Costco a lot. That's not what you should walk away with. But it's also not complete avoidance. It's not either one of those things. But instead, it's a hopeful urgency. That while God does bring destruction for sin in the end, because he's just, he's also loving. And he, he wants to rescue his children in the end as well. And so how do we view the end? We look at it and we say, I don't know when it's coming, but I do know that it's coming. And so I'm going to live like it's coming. You see that? That we don't know when it's coming, but we do know that it is coming. And so we're going to live in light of that truth. And so this morning, if you don't know for certain that you know Jesus, that you have that security in him, you can stop listening to me, and you can start talking to Jesus. You give your life to him. You trust in him for the first time, that you can have this security in him, even in the end. If you know Jesus, listen, we need to celebrate and proclaim this. And not just when we sing. We need to do that in a few moments. But the way we live, that we would proclaim that we have a different kind of hope, that we're people of the light, that we have no guilt in life, no fear in death. And that's not just a song, that's our life. That's the power of Christ within us in the end and today. Let's pray for that. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can celebrate and proclaim this truth that there's no guilt in life, that there's no fear in death. And God, I, I know this morning that there's men and women who want to believe that and want to walk functionally in that, but all they can see is their sin, all they can see is their shame, all they can see is their guilt. And so I pray that even in this moment, they would stop listening to me and start talking to you, that they would give all that sin, shame, and guilt to you, that you took it on the cross, that you absorbed God's wrath on their behalf if they'll place their faith in you. So I pray that for the first time that there would be men and women who throw up empty hands of faith this morning. That they would say, God, I trust you. That I want to live in light of the end, securely rooted in you. 
that everything matters, and I want to experience that. God, I pray that some of these men and women who know you but don't live like that, that we would repent of that, and that we would begin to celebrate, even as we sing, that you're a good God, you're a just God, that there's no guilt in life, no fear in death, and we would proclaim that. God, I thank you that you're glorious, that you're all-powerful, yet merciful. God, may that ignite celebration within us. May that empower mission through us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray that. Amen.